you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit to teach us, to counsel us, to guide us, to lead us into all the truth. Illumine our hearts and our minds now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would invite you to stand, if you're able, one more time for the reading of God's word as we continue to look at the letters of Revelation. This morning, it's the letter to the church at Thyatira. I had to work hard making sure I was pronouncing that right. That's like, I can't wait for Philadelphia. That particular church I'm ready for. Okay, but Thyatira, that took me a while to gain. So hopefully, I guess the good news is you really don't know if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it wrong or not. So we're going from that. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing our study of these letters to the churches in Revelation. We have seen that there's one like a son of man. There's Jesus standing in the midst, right in the middle. Very important that we recognize he's not standing above. He's not below. He's not even alongside. He's in the middle where he knows our circumstances, our weaknesses, our strengths, our needs. And he's in the middle of what? Seven golden lampstands, which represent all the churches. And from there, the middle, he delivers seven messages, seven prophetic oracles. With his authority, thus saith the Lord. And each message has, has one major purpose. In the words of Eugene Peterson, that purpose is to give spiritual training, spiritual direction to help disciples of Jesus live in but not of the world. In other words, this is training, this is instruction from the risen, ascended, glorified, reigning Jesus on what kind of Christian and therefore what kind of churches do we need to be in order to live faithfully in the world like the salt of the earth that is savory and a preservative and it's in the meat but is not of the world. And if you think about it, that's quite a tension, isn't it? There are many churches, there are many ministries that go in the world and do what? They compromise. They end up becoming like the world. 
There are other churches that out of fear, maybe out of suspicion, so they're not of the world, they separate from the world, but they have nothing to do with the world. Like salt, not even being in the meat. How good is that? We have to learn, if we're to live faithfully, how to live in but not of the world. To be enmeshed but separate from at the same time. You feel the tension yet? You should. I hope so. It's kind of like what Paul wrote to the churches. For example, when he said to the church at Ephesus, As a prisoner for the Lord, one who belongs to the Lord, I exalt you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Or to the church of Philippi, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, these letters to the churches in Revelation show us the specifics of what that kind of life looks like. To be a faithful disciple living in but not of the world, we've seen is a life of love, is a life refined by suffering, is a life of truth, and this morning, to the church at Thyatira, it's a life of holiness. Christian, let me ask you a question. Fairly pointed, fairly direct question. Do you take holiness seriously? Listen to just a sampling of scriptures on the topic of holiness. Peter writes in his first letter, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's alluding there to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11, where he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate. In other words, set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up. So listen, in the Old Testament, salvation, grace, is talked about in narrative, in pictures, in shadows, in types. So salvation is pictured as a liberation, as an exodus. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up. Salvation is of the Lord. He did the work. He redeemed. He brought you up out of the land of Egypt, listen carefully, to be your God. I didn't bring you up out of the land of Egypt just because you were on the Titanic and everything is sinking and I'm going to whisk you away to heaven. No, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt so that I could be in your God. I could be involved in your life. I could be the center of your life. To be your God, you therefore shall be holy, set apart as I am holy. And then I think the verse that pierces me the most is Hebrews 12 that says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I know that strikes my heart. I don't know what it does to yours. And yes, we certainly can say none of us can reach that standard that is set for us in the scriptures. But friends, have we so watered down the standard? Have we so watered down the requirement of the scriptures that when we hear the gospel that Jesus is our holiness, without holiness no one will see the Lord and Jesus is your righteousness, Jesus is your holiness, but have we so watered down what the scriptures require that the gospel has stopped really being good news to us? That it's become just kind of ho-hum that our lives are ho-hum because we've not been struck with the weightiness of what is required so that when you hear grace, it is absolutely galvanizing to your hearts. 
See, maybe if we really took Scripture like these seriously and let the requirement fall upon us and sink into us, then the good news will really be good news and it will overflow in our being changed people. The Holy Spirit in this letter to the church at Thyatira is pressing in on us the very practical issue of personal holiness. Disciples of Jesus, if you're to live faithfully in the world, must be set apart for Christ. What does that mean and what does this text teach us? What, what do we need to learn about holiness? And this text teaches us two things. It teaches us the heart of holiness and gives us the hope of holiness. Okay, first of all, the heart of holiness. And interesting, commentators generally reflect that the letter to Thyatira is probably one of the more difficult of the letters to interpret, and that's because compared to the other cities where there's just so much historical information, here there is some, and I will pass on to you what the historians teach, but there's just not nearly as much about Thyatira. You know, if I were to ask you, give me a book report on Thyatira, how much would you have known? Come on, let's be honest, right? I didn't know much about Thyatira, okay? But here's what we do know. See, like all the other messages, I'm completely dependent on the historians for this information, but what every commentator absolutely agrees on is that Jesus' overall message here is clear, that he is addressing a fundamental issue that every disciple, every believer, every Christian, no matter what age, no matter what time period you live in, no matter what culture you're a part of, has to deal with and has to face, and that is who owns your life? Is God functionally, I know we believe, is he functionally your God? Do you live with God calling the shots? Who owns your life? Think about this. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, and he said this kind of evangelistically, and I read this and I go, he seems to be almost talking people out of coming to him when he gives evangelism like this. He says, if anyone would come after me. So in other words, he's going to paint the cost. And there is a cost to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, there's the issue in the heart of holiness before us. Now, how does this relate to what is going on? How does this, in a sense, work itself out, play itself out? And here's what we know about Thyatira, okay? Here's what the historians tell us. First of all, it was the center for the worship of a god by the name of Apollo. And Apollo was the god of sunlight. And he was thought to be the divine guardian of the city. As a matter of fact, the people of Thyatira thought that the Roman emperor was the human incarnation of Apollo. So much so that the emperor at the time that Revelation was written, the emperor Domitian, names his son, son of God, and on his coins, Domitian's son is seen or shown holding seven stars, which is very pertinent to how this letter is addressed, because verse 18, Jesus, look at how he's referred to, it says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right, the words of the son of God, and this is the only place in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is spoken of as the Son of God. Historians also tell us that 
Thyatira was a thriving commercial center. It was a manufacturing and marketing hub in the Roman province of Asia. And one of the things that we learn from the rest of the New Testament, in fact, the book of Acts, chapter 16, tells us that Lydia, one of the first people that Paul encountered when he went to Philippi, that Lydia was from Thyatira. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 16, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Commentators tell us that it was quite possible that she was in Philippi selling Thyatira's famous purple cloth. What's relevant, though, and this is why it's important, even the book of Acts is telling us, Luke's telling us in the book of Acts, about the business, the commercial center, and they're doing it for this reason. One of the things that we learn is relevant for Jesus' message and particularly his challenge to the church here, Thyatira happened to be famous for its unusual number of trade guilds. Now follow along with me. I have a couple of quotes. There's one historian who says this about the city of Thyatira. He says, there were guilds for everything. There were guilds for wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths, and shoemakers. This historian says, which means no one could make it financially in that city unless he was a member of one of those guilds. In other words, if you didn't join it, you risked financial disaster. Now, so far, you might be going, okay, that's fine. Live in Thyatira, be a Christian in Thyatira, join a trade guild. Isn't this be in the world but not of the world? Uh Aha, so far so good. We got the in the world part. Another historian says, here's the of the world part. He describes what these particular trade guilds were like. He says, these trade guilds happen to have common meals together. He says, the meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. Sound familiar? We're about to come to a common meal, aren't we? And we're about to have grape juice or wine poured out as an offering, as a remembrance, as a commemoration to commune with the living God. It says it was in fact the heathen grace before and after the meal. How could a Christian join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of the animal would be offered on the altar and the meat of it would be given to the worshiper to make a feast for the members of his trade guild. Once again, how could a Christian sit and eat meat which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo, the local god? Still further, this trade guild feast not infrequently would degenerate into carousals where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? In the world, but not of the world. To live in the city and make it financially was to join one of these trade guilds, and to not join was to risk financial disaster. What's a Christian to do? How do you live in but not of the world? That's the tension. That's the tension we face. And so while Jesus, listen to the letter, is affirming and commending so much about this church, your faith, your works, your love, your patient endurance, 
He says there are some who are not committed to holiness. There are some who are willing to compromise. There are some who are willing to flirt with idolatry. And the way he illustrates it is you have been seduced by the teaching of this false teacher, this false prophetess, Jezebel. Now whether that was a real woman with the real name of Jezebel or not, we have no idea. But what we do know is that her teaching or the spirit of this false teaching was justifying compromise And it was this that Jesus was confronting. Verse 20, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. Now, what do we know about Jezebel from the Old Testament? Her background is given in 1 Kings 16 to 19. And here's what we know about her. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, which were enemies of Israel. And she became very influential in Israel through her marriage to King Ahab. In fact, the key issue was that she was a worshiper of Baal, the nature god, the fertility god. And her influence was immediate and devastating. She led Israel into Baal worship and convinced King Ahab to build an altar to Baal in Samaria. And if any prophet would speak against her, they would be immediately executed. Now the issue, the one concerning holiness, is the issue of compromise. Can you worship both Yahweh and Baal? Can you tolerate both the, at the same time both the worship of Jesus and flirt with idolatry? Friends, this is the heart of holiness. The heart of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. The fact that he is our God. He redeemed, he drew you up, he brought you up from the land of slavery. He saved you from sin. Not to go live on your own, but to be your God. To be in personal relationship with you and that you would be his people. That's why the very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And it was Martin Luther who said, whenever you break commandments two through ten, you automatically break one. No matter what we do in our lives, if you gossip, if you steal, if you cheat, if you lust, if you are selfish, whatever that expression or fruit is, it will go back. The sin underneath the sin is you're putting something else ahead of God. You are having another God before God. And this text, if it teaches us anything, is that our God is a jealous lover. For the people of Thyatira, the issue is who will be first, Lord Jesus or the trade guilds? Is God your God? Where does your loyalty or allegiance lie? For us, what is it? Who will be first? Will it be Jesus or sports? Jesus or family? Jesus or our personal freedom? Jesus or what others think of me? Jesus or our reputation? Do we have the spirit of Jezebel? Hard and searching question. And what are we to do with that? This is where I always say, aren't you glad I don't end the sermon here? For that's the heart of holiness, but what is the hope of holiness? In a word, it's to have Jesus. We need to recognize That Jesus is our holiness. That we're united to holiness itself. Listen to how Paul puts it. 
He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, It was because of him that you were in Christ. Now, everywhere in the letters of Paul, his description of what it means to be a Christian, and this is so important for us to control. If we're going to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, let's learn to think correctly. Being a Christian is not just about walking an aisle, having a conversion experience, accepting Jesus into our heart. It is about being united to Jesus Christ. It is about being in Christ so that everything he performed, everything he did, he did as your substitute and representative, and it could be counted to you. So listen to how Paul puts it. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do you understand that? This is the hope of holiness. See, I gave you the heart of holiness, and guess what that means? We don't, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, and you don't have holiness in yourself. Where are you going to get it? There's only one place. Jesus. Because of God, you are in Jesus, and if you were in Christ Jesus, he became for you wisdom, righteousness, which means justification, Sanctification, that is the same word used for holiness. He is your holiness. See, this is what it's saying. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You don't have that. You need that holiness to see the Lord, and you and yourself don't have it. But Jesus is your holiness. You are in him. He is your holiness. He is good enough. Therefore, you are good enough in him. That is the hope of holiness. But friends, how do we grow in appropriating that in our lives? How do we grow in our personal holiness in a practical sort of way? See, I'm afraid there's one quick verse in this text that can be very easy to overlook. Look with me at verse 25. In verse 25, Jesus gives the instruction only, hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast what you have. What do you have? You have Jesus. You have his holiness. Hold fast to him until he returns, until he comes, until he restores all things, until he consummates the kingdom. And how do we do that? There's another verse in the Corinthian correspondence that I absolutely love. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I would lay this before you as a way to grow in your personal holiness. Paul, in this text where he's comparing the far surpassing weight and glory and worth of the new covenant fulfilled in Christ compared to the old Mosaic covenant, says, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you hear that? Because there's the key. The practical key. To behold the Lord. Not to follow some principles. To learn to behold Jesus. To learn more and more to behold his glory. See, look at our text. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to behold the Lord according to our text? It means to behold, first of all, the one who is the Son of God. To behold the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, meaning eyes that penetrate, eyes that nothing escapes his notice and nothing escapes his interest. He genuinely wants to know you 
personally and and intimately. You belong to the one. Learn to behold. Hold fast to the one who has feet like burnished bronze. I happen to love that imagery because it's feet to run after you when you run away from him. Think of the father of the prodigal son. What is the prodigal doing? He is running. And when he comes to his senses and he begins to return, what is the father doing? The father's not inside. The father is outside, which means he's running after. He's hiking up his skirt, looking for, searching for, pursuing his lost son. Do you behold the one who loves you and cares for you so much that you, like one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Found, says, prone to wander, here at Chief Wanderer, prone to leave the God I love, Get behind me, I'm the chief prodigal. But friends, do you behold the Lord who chases after you? Who loves you enough to say, I'm not going to let you run away from me. I've got feet like burnished bronze that are coming after you. Do you know how you grow in holiness? Behold that king. Because he is the one coming after you. And finally, look at the promise of verse 28. Verse 28, behold the one who gives you the morning star. We get the promise of the morning star. Now, what in the world is that? There's only one other place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is called the bright morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Behold the Lord, once again, the promise of the morning star is the promise of Jesus, the promise of his holiness. He is your righteousness. He is your holiness. Jesus gives you himself. This is why the Lord's Supper is so important. Do you understand what we're getting? We are not just commemorating the cross. We are communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is giving you his body and his blood to feed on. He is giving you his real spiritual presence to strengthen you. And this hope, this hope of holiness, the hope of Jesus means, as one commentator put it, the morning star usually appears at the darkest time of night, about two or three in the the morning. Usually emerges at that point when the night is as dark as it's going to get. When it appears, there's no sign of the dawn. It looks like darkness has won the day. It looks hopeless. But then the morning star appears, at first very faint and small at first. But you know the night cannot withstand the dawn. It is just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. And the morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. The light shines in the darkness, John said in his gospel, and the darkness has not overcome it. To the one who conquers, I will give the bright morning star. Let him with ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches about Jesus, and hold fast to what you have until he comes. Father, I pray that we would be a church beholding the glory of the Lord. The only way for us Growing in holiness as if we behold the Lord, as if we put off ourselves and put on Jesus. 
And so I pray that we would learn to behold you and to grow in you, to continue to behold your glory and to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, now help us by your spirit make Jesus real to us. In Jesus' name, amen.